Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. Today is Ichi Eleventy Twenty Two Dozen. No longer a baby, nor yet an adolescent. So here we are on these wet Oregon winter days. Most of us mostly recovered from holiday madness, zooming into what most likely promises to be a radically kaleidoscopic year of bluster and bull durham. At the lethally cancerous core of it all, at least in home country USA, is a specious creature who demands as his satanic given right to be dictator of the USA, his core platform to lock up everybody who opposes him, and perhaps everybody who did not vote for him if he is able to compute election tabulations. He has been reckoned as the avatar of America's worst pathologies, quote-unquote, who would have eradicated the Bill of Rights, racial equality, and even threatened to dissolve birthright citizenship, which might very well have been the substance for his rejection of a second term the last time. I open today's program with Albert Pinkerton Ryder, who just might be among the best American artists, though runners-up to that claim contest his superiority of art as well as what might be considered his bizarrity. He was born in 1847 and died the year World War I ended in 1918. He anticipated several paths of 20th century art which continue into this millennium, yet he was half-blind, which made focusing on small details or looking at bright light painful. Moonlight and the ocean were his major subjects. Moonlight and the ocean were his major subjects. And though he was never regarded as a realist, which set him apart from contemporaries, whose lush fantasies of fluff and feathers regarded at the time as reality, his dark visions repelled his more fashionable fellow and female artists. Ryder's paintings were a visual glimpse of both Edgar Allan Poe and John Milton, assimilated in yellowish, gray-brown, indigo, and black. His most noted and provocative painting is of a pale, gray, human skeleton carrying death's scythe, barebone, on a lean, spectral horse galloping more or less perpetually around a racetrack of sorts which he finished in 1910. Again, a ghostly gray-brown, also a green, which one critic said was a light not of this world. My favorite painting by Ryder, which I consider the essential American canvas, is perhaps also its simplest in form and color, which he painted in the 1880s. Two black daubs, sitting in the stern of a black single-masted sailing boat, its black sail, sharp as a knife blade, wallowing in a nearly black ocean underneath a large black cloud shaped like a thumbprint in an ashen gray sky. Ryder called it under a cloud. Almost in a single stroke, 
he etched my own ambivalent reaction to previously clinging aboard frail fishing vessels in a vast, uncertain ocean, which I knew even so was a metaphor for my precarious and barely cognitive hold on life. But he also projected the upcoming 20th century under this dark cloud, awash on his sinister black ocean, though his own sense seems an inchoate spirituality that might be a template for humanity's angst about converging into this latest millennium of its own counting. It is an almost childlike painting, except for the knowing tremulous chill it evokes at sight of it. And now, by the late Robert Brake from Ocean Park, Washington, Combating Tyranny with Laughter, A Short History. Let's face it, humor has long been employed as an effective weapon to combat tyranny. Homer, a 12th century B.C. deep-browed laureate of laws, composed the Odyssey, urging others to choose their leaders wisely. Unlike current fictional character Homer Simpson, the ancient Homer was never a comic, nor did he invite laughter in at least four sequences in the Odyssey. Comic 5th century Greek playwright Aristophanes lampooned tyrants in his play, The Birds. I have discovered medieval instances of the use of humor to combat tyranny, as, for instance, 14th century English poet and author Geoffrey Chaucer ridiculing tyrants in his Canterbury Tales. Renaissance authors Shakespeare, Rabelais, and others also employed humor to ridicule tyrannical leaders. America's founding fathers were a serious bunch, as circumstances mandated, but Ben Franklin did laugh a lot, noting that democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch, quote-unquote. Anglo-Irish satirist and pamphleteer Jonathan Swift issued some dark humor as he attacked English tyrants for their dominance of the Irish. His modest proposal is well worth a reading. And let's not overlook another passionate pamphleteer, Thomas Paine, who composed devastating attacks on tyranny, employing occasional humor in common sense, which he wrote in 1776. 19th century humorists like Mark Twain mocked tyrants also. 20th century opponents of tyranny include Will Rogers, Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, the Smothers Brothers, and a bevy of less well-known commentators. One early 20th century cynic does stand out for me. Acerbic writer Ambrose Bierce compiled his Devil's Dictionary, publishing it in 1906. He famously defined a conservative as, quote, a statesman enamored of existing evils as distinguished from the liberal who wishes to replace them with others, unquote. A riveting distinction for contemporary political aficionados. 
more recent humorists who comment on tyrannical figures like Donald Trump include Stephen Colbert, Samantha Bee, Trevor Noah, and Bill Maher. Remember, would-be dictators like Trump may seem strong, but they can't take a joke. We need to mobilize and disseminate some riveting humor about our would-be king emperor. Finally, it's ironic that current Ukrainian leader Vladimir Zelensky is a noted comedian among his other professional activities. Czech author, diplomat, and psychologist Michael Zandavsky reminds us that the sound of laughter is an ability to laugh, is a freedom to laugh. There may not be much to laugh about in a bad totalitarian system. That's where the laughter comes in, quote, unquote. I appreciate that sentiment and intend to continue mingling laughter with my tears. And that was by the late Robert Brick. And now, by Maureen Dowd for the New York Times, is Trump hell? These are the men that try the Times' souls. With the disreputable Donald Trump challenging the disfavored President Biden, the 2024 race has become the embodiment of Oscar Wilde's witticism about fox hunting, the unspeakable in pursuit of the inedible. Bleeding young and non-white voters, the president finally heeded Democrats urging him to get out there, as Nancy Pelosi put it, and throw some haymakers at Trump. Biden flew to Pennsylvania just recently to visit Valley Forge and make a pugnacious speech invoking an earlier moment when we were fighting against despotism and clinging to a dream of a democracy. In a discontented winter during the American Revolution, George Washington tried to inspire his downtrodden troops at Valley Forge by having Thomas Paine's The American Crisis read to them. These are the times that try men's souls, Paine wrote, adding, tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. As the voting to determine the next president gets underway, it is clear that the tyrannical Trump won't be easily conquered, and that is our hell. You can't love your country only when you win, Biden said in his speech, making a forceful case that America, which dumped the Mad King George, should not embrace the Mad King Donald. If we bow down to a wannabe dictator who loves dictators, who echoes the language of Nazi Germany, who egged on the mob on January 6th and then rewrote the facts to steal history, just as he tried to steal the election. What does that say about who we are, Biden wondered. Rejecting Trump's campaign of grievance, vengeance, malignance, and connivance, the president said, we never bow, we never bend, we speak of possibilities, not carnage. We are not weighted down by grievances. We don't foster fear. We don't walk around as victims. On Thursday, the Biden-Harris campaign blasted out excerpts from a Margaret Sullivan column in The Guardian, upbraiding the media on its tendency to fall into 
performative neutrality, quote-unquote, focusing too much on Biden's presentation and poll numbers and not enough on stressing what a second Trump presidency would mean. Journalists should not fear looking as if they are in the tank, quote-unquote, for Biden if they zero in on Trump's seditious behavior, Sullivan said. The media should worry less about the horse race than about the underscoring that many of Trump's threats are authoritarian. She is right that the media must constantly remind itself not to use old tropes on a new trollop like Trump, particularly since the media is in a confluence of interest with Trump, as he himself has pointed out. Thanks to Trump, journalists can be festooned with gold, lucrative book contracts, TV deals, and speaking gigs. The man who enriched himself with millions from foreign states and royalty seeking favors from the United States has the power to enrich us, too. He's a once-in-a-lifetime story, the outlandish star of an even bigger reality show than his last. He put up a video on Truth Social one Friday touting the idea that God created him as a caretaker and, quote, shepherd to mankind, unquote. It also chided Melania, showing her tripping and acting as if all she had to do was lunch with friends. A narrator intones, God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, fix this country, work all day, fight the Marxists, eat supper, then go to the Oval Office and stay past midnight at a meeting of the heads of state, quote, unquote, topping off a hard week with Sunday church. So God made Trump, and that's a quote. It was bound to happen. Trump playing divine victim to pass himself off as Christ-like or even hard-working. Both are equally untrue. At his Friday afternoon speech in Sioux Center, Iowa, Trump resorted to his bully boy ways, mocking Biden's stutter. I am not sure whether pounding away on the facts will work in a country with alternate realities. According to a new Washington Post University of Maryland poll, 25% of Americans said it is probably or definitely true that the FBI was behind January 6th. Among Republicans, the Post said, 34% said the FBI organized and encouraged the insurrection, compared with 30% of independent and 13% of Democrats. If people don't know by now that Trump tried to overthrow the government he was running on January 6th, if they don't know that the MAGA fanatics breaking into the Capitol, beating up cops and threatening to harm Pelosi and hang Mike Pence were criminals, not patriots and hostages, as Trump risibly calls them, if they don't know that Trump created the radical Supreme Court that is stripping women of their rights, then they don't want to know or they don't just care. But the media must pound on. The enablers at Fox News aside, journalists learned a lot in 2016 and have changed practices to better fence with Trump, 
fact-checking him more closely, engaging in defensive reporting, no longer covering every tweet like holy writ. Threats to democracy now count as a beat, just like schools and courts. The Times uses the rubric, Democracy Challenged. When Dick Cheney was a deranged vice president, I was not permitted to call him a liar in my column. But now the New York Times lets columnists call Trump a liar. We have learned to separate the man from the office. Just because someone sits in the hollowed White House doesn't mean he deserves the respect of the office. Not if he's ginning up a fake war or if he's flirting with treason and white supremacy. Still, the Biden-Harris campaign trumpeting of Sullivan's column gives the impression that it expects the media to prop up Biden. Biden has to press his own case and not rely on the media or Trump's fatuousness to win the election for him. People don't want to vote against somebody. They want to vote for somebody. The president must continue to be aggressive in convincing people he's the best alternative, that at 81 he's not too old for the job, that he has solutions to stop the chaos on the border and relentless death in Gaza. You do your job, Mr. President, and we will do ours. And now, from the Washington Post, 2023 will have been Earth's hottest in human history, the WMO report confirms. It is written by Scott Dance. As COP28, or COP28, began, the World Meteorological Organization confirmed what appeared to be a foregone conclusion, that 2023 is assured to end up as Earth's hottest year in human history. It will break a record set in 2016, underscoring that the world is closer than ever to the global warming thresholds that global leaders are seeking to avoid. Data from January through October shows the planet is likely to average 1.3 degrees Celsius to 1.5 degrees Celsius above a pre-industrial norm this past year, the WMO said. Constraining global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels is the world's most important climate goal. Scientists say it is becoming increasingly out of reach, but that achieving it would save coral reefs, preserve polar ice, and prevent dramatic sea level rise. Such warmth would need to sustain for years and decades at a time to face the worst consequences. Petri Talis, the organization's secretary general, stressed that this year's warming has had real-life harms around the world and pushed the planet to new weather and climate extremes. Greenhouse gas levels are record high. Global temperatures are record high. Sea level rise is record high. Antarctic ice is record low, he said in a statement. It's a deafening cacophony of broken records. We have the roadmap to limit the rise in global temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius and avoid the worst of climate chaos, but we need leaders 
to fire the starting gun at COP28 on a race to keep the 1.5-degree limit alive, Guterres said in a video message that played during the United Nations Climate Conference in Dubai. The heat has had clear consequences. As the planet simmered at record peak warmth in July, deadly heat waves, extreme floods, and raging wildfires signaled climate change alarm bells. Some three in four people around the world suffered at least 30 days of heat so extreme that it is estimated to be at least three times more likely today than it was before the Industrial Revolution, Climate Central found. These are more than just statistics, Talas told COP attendees. We risk losing the race to save our glaciers and to rein in sea level rise. We cannot return to the climate of the 20th century, but we must act now to limit the risks of an increasingly inhospitable climate in this and the coming centuries. This is Michael McCusker. Joanne Rideout continues as this program's engineer. I would like to add my own tribute to Michael Foster, whose recent death encapsulates a period of Astoria history in which he was so vital a part and honored with the sobriquet of Mr. Astoria. We were Irving Avenue neighbors for nearly a decade when my across-the-street neighbor was Willis Van Dusen, whom I had known when he delivered Pepsi-Cola to a Cannon Beach bar in which I was a bartender. I walked past Michael Foster's house nearly every day, up and down to the riverfront Astoria City Center, and I nearly always stopped to admire two singular metal sculptures in the front yard of Foster's lovingly preserved 19th century house. I was especially fascinated by two sharp spheres rising to the sky like arms, yet vaginal in their arch, cleanly abstract and inscrutable, celestially unpassioned, rooted solidly to the hillside turf with feet as incongruous as cartoon goofy shoes stuck in a pedestal concrete slab. I thought of it as infinity, not so different from the movie version of H.G. Wells's The Time Machine, in which eons race past its stationary position, or the 5,000-year-old Sphinx alternately buried under desert sand for centuries. One woman told me she once stood between the spheres of infinity. It was spacey, she laughed. Michael Foster was perhaps the iconic historian of his recent era. He was not a fisherman or a logger. Those halcyon days have long vanished into history and myth. He, in a sense, represented Astoria as a gatekeeper, a historic tourism entrepreneur, promoting the city's reputation as the oldest American settlement west of the Rocky Mountains, as well as Pacific Northwest, as the late Ego Unan proclaimed to be the Paris of the Columbia River. Michael Foster has been called Mr. Astoria, and he certainly did much more for Astoria than its long-ago namesake, John Jacob Astor, the fur pelt baron who never got any further west than Manhattan Island city of New York. I remember a night when a visiting friend from Portland, Michael Schuster, 
both of us ex-Marines and members of Vietnam Veterans Against the War, he clothed in homemade buckskins, were drinking red wine at my house when Michael Horowitz, on leave from his Peace Corps stint as principal of a school on the Pacific island of Tonga, brought into the house Michael Foster. We four Michaels shared the rest of the wine and talked about the plethora of Michaels in the world. A memorable evening. You've been listening to A Story Told on KMUN, featuring Michael McCusker, journalist, activist, former firefighter, and Vietnam veteran. Michael has been sharing essays and poetry on A Story Told for decades on KMUN. For 30 years, he published the North Coast Times-Eagle newspaper out of his home in Astoria, Oregon. Michael currently shares his work and the works of other authors from his home on the Central Oregon coast. Join us here next week for A Story Told.